A quick warning, this podcast includes allegations of child sexual abuse, so listener discretion is advised. If any of the details are triggering, please talk to someone. If you're in New Zealand, you can call or text 1737 to speak with a trained professional. It says what you've got to have. Personal details for death registration. Uh-huh. Peter Ellis is dying of bladder cancer. Former prison chaplain and close friend Stephen Ferguson is helping Peter to fill out forms. Carry on. Full name, your profession, usual residence, date of birth. I request a direct commission mm-hmm. or chapel service, newspaper notice. No, just a direct commission, yeah, carry on. Yep. By this stage, it's clear Peter doesn't have long to go. I can see his health getting worse and worse every time I visit. Ashes to be returned to next kin, scattered to the four winds, $85. That's what I want. I yep. want that stuff. That's why I've got that. No notices, no mucking round, and I will come back and haunt anyone that does it. Literally. Peter Ellis, the man at the centre of New Zealand's most controversial child abuse case, came to work at the Civic Crèche in Christchurch in 1986. He'd spent his early life moving around small-town New Zealand, and he was openly bisexual at a time when that was rare. As a kindy teacher, he was both popular and problematic, being reprimanded several times. Then late in 1991 came the complaint that would change everything. A complaint by a three-year-old boy who said he was scared of Peter's black penis. Hi, I'm Ali Jones. And I'm Alexander Beza. This is Conviction, the Chrysler Civic Crash Case, Episode 2, Pooh Sticks. I lost my innocence, I lost my trust in the police and the social workers and some of my friends and... For a minute, let me stop. I'm sorry. At this stage, we were just not quite sure what did happen. I think he's a very clever offender. I mean, why you can get away with, with making the accusation and it's automatically believed, you've already thrown the first piece of poo and once one poo sticks and the next bit sticks, He just was playing with his toys in the bath and he said, Mum, I don't like Peter's black penis. So I said, have you seen Peter's penis? And he said, yes, oh, I don't like it. And have you, where, where have you seen it? And he said, in the sleep room. This is a woman we're calling Ms Magnolia. Her three-year-old son, Geoffrey, is the boy in the bath. Both of their names are pseudonyms to protect their identities. Ms Magnolia did what any mother would do when they heard something like this. She contacted the creche. In her words, Peter Ellis had committed inappropriate sexual behaviour. Four years later, she spoke to the TVNZ Weekly Current Affairs programme, Assignment. What could have happened was Peter maybe exposed himself in the sleep room or um, maybe masturbated in front of the children or something. That was what I was thinking was a possibility. Did you have any reason to doubt the veracity of what your child had told you? No came out of nowhere. It is not related to anything else. All of this landed at the feet of crash manager Gay Davidson. In 200 metres, you will arrive at your destination. I first met Gay at her home sometime in 2019. You have arrived. It's all just been such a horrible mess. I can't actually remember how. I think I was called by the council 
and told to bring Peter into the council. No, sorry, Peter was suspended, I think, for three days or stood down for three days. This is, sorry, this is terrible that I can't remember this now. Um, and then I had to bring him into the council to have a meeting. In contrast to Gay, Peter, despite being on heavy meds and painkillers, remembers the events as though they were yesterday. What stage do you then hear about it? Does someone then pull you aside and say... No, 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 no pulling aside or anything. It's been bummed. Um, no, late November of 91, my mother was coming back from England with my grandmother, who had galloping Alzheimer's. My mother and grandmother were late getting off the plane, like an hour late. There was a suitcase missing. And Grandma, who still looked fairly imperious, wouldn't get off the plane until it was found. Mum was so angry and so tired, and I said to go home and go to sleep and I'll have Grandma at my place. So I organised someone to fill in for me and got a phone call from Gay to say, no, I had to come in. And I said, well, I don't care, I'm not coming in. I said, I have a family emergency and that's that. So she said, well, would I at least turn up in the morning so I had to leave a woman with galloping Alzheimer's and a mother who was tired beside herself. So I went there. I didn't even get out of the... I got my foot out of the car and Gay was waiting for me. I never even... From that day on, I never stepped into the crash, ever. He was really angry. And angry at how he was being dealt with. Angry at the actual accusations himself and um, angry at us which you can't blame him, because we all were also told by the council that we had to, we weren't allowed anything to do with him, and we all took that on board, unfortunately. It's a kind of situation you think about over and over again, questioning your actions, Gay certainly has. She still has an affidavit, which is a written statement of her recollections that she submitted to the court. I called her up and asked her to read it out loud. I was also told not to tell anyone anything, and if I did, then my job would be on the line and I was sworn to secrecy. I could not tell anyone that that is neither the parents nor the staff. I was under extreme stress and found the responsibility and weight of maintaining that knowledge intolerable. Peter wasn't surprised when he learned who was behind the claims. So she was one of those kinds of mothers and uh, one of her statements was that she woke up and found that her little boy wasn't her little boy. I mean, she'd basically been on drugs for Africa for to the best of my knowledge, for postnatal depression, and she owed fees and things. Um, I mean, it was just a joke. I mean, we've all picked, you know, we've all, you know, and I just said, oh, it's all sort itself out. I mean, the woman's a, is a nutbag. Now I've gone back through what Miss Magnolia said to the police. Her statement is detailed, but I didn't find anything that suggests she was using drugs, although she does talk about being treated for clinical depression. We reached out to Miss Magnolia's family, who told us she wouldn't want to talk to us. In fact, none of the complainant families wanted to talk to me. But after months of toing and froing, the aunt of one child agreed to talk to our executive producer, Tim Watkin. Yeah, it's, it's good to pull back the curtain here. This podcast, look, it's always been based on those poignant interviews you did with Peter Ellis as he was dying. Some of those last interviews that he ever did. But look, at the same time, through the 30 years of debate that's been going on with this case, it's clear this isn't just his story. We tracked down this aunt in the hope that her sister or nephew might be willing to talk to us, but they said no. 
Eventually, though, she agreed that someone needed to speak for the children. We agreed to keep her identity secret, which is why we're calling her Rose. How are you doing? Um, okay, yep. Rather be anywhere else, actually. Really regretting I said I'd do it, but yeah, here we are. Unless you're there, you don't know. You have to be there because I've seen how distorted. This has shown me how distorted a story. This, this is actually the most distorted story ever. Incredibly distorted. And it's shown me how that can happen, which, you know, it's truly bizarre. I can hear how clearly convinced she is. But of course, just about everyone is in this story. They're either certain Peter did it or he didn't. And Rose wasn't just some unconnected aunt. She was actually part of the wider crash community. I had a small child at the time who was on the waiting list for the crash. I'd picked up a friend's child from there and I picked up my nephew from there. Yeah, it was the call crash. She remembers being at home in late 1991, getting a call from her sister with the news that would turn their world upside down. One of the first things about accepting it was having to tell my grandmother. And my grandmother had been saying for some three or four months, someone is hitting that child because he had got quite um, angry and unpleasant and throwing things at, at her and at, unusually, he was a very, very sweet child. There had been a behavioural change noticed and we as a family resented that observation of my grandmother's because she was thought mothers should be at home with their children and not have a career and that kind of thing and we ignored her wisdom on that. Rose says she personally knew three of the children who claimed Peter Ellis abused them. I didn't want to have to accept it. I didn't want to have to get over my denial in 24 hours. I didn't want to have to um, face the, the reality of it. I had to because the kids brought it to me. Mm. And I heard it and saw it. And so, you know, I didn't get a choice about that. Of course, no one got a choice when that first accusation was made. One of the crash teachers, Paula, she too was worried and shocked when she heard the news. You might remember I met Paula on a sheep farm in episode one. Peter was stood down. Not one of us, I believe, would have thought, oh, there's been something going on where he might have been hurting children um, or offending against children. That never entered my head. I would have gone with the, he's been drinking at work. So Peter is suspended and all the staff have been told not to visit him. I remember thinking, oh, stuff it, I'm just going to see him anyway. And I just called into his flat after work. This is another crash teacher, Debbie Gillespie. I don't know, I just really wanted to go and see him because I thought he must have been terribly, terribly alone. His job had gone and his contact with lots of people, it must have been terribly isolating. I remember him being sort of light-hearted and just jokey. I suspect that, oh, I don't know, it, it was just his way of coping with it all that he didn't want, obviously didn't want to talk about anything. Bronwyn, who oversaw Peter's teacher training, also made a call to visit him. As he opened the door, sort of, what the, the F's going on? Um, would have been my response and my attitude and my face and my, my voice and my words. And he uh, sort of welcomed me in but with a half-pied giggle of, oh, I should have known you'd be here, sort of thing. But that was more me than the situation. And I can't remember how he described it to me, but I do remember that when he did, and then I just laughed. 
uh, and um, it was. Ugh. And did he give you a sense that he was scared or like uh, was he nervous? Not. He wasn't. He, he was nervous, but um, he he was nervous, but was he wasn't. He was a bit contemptuous, but it didn't seem to me to be out of line with an appropriate response. After his Sudan, what happened then? Um, I, I don't know. We, we both talked about, you know, what was going to happen. And unfortunately, I could see in, straight away that while things had been said to him about what was or wasn't happening, um, that his questions weren't going to be able to be answered, and I realised that this was the uh, pretty pretty quickly that this was the catch twenty two of you can be accused of something, or but nobody was going to tell you exactly what or how. Reese had children at the crash and had been friendly with Peter. What they did was they they put out rumours before anybody knew anything, so um, that's all we had to hold on to were rumours. I couldn't imagine that he was a right, so I thought, oh, I'll go and talk to Peter. So I went round to his house. Anyway, he opens the door, and he's not sure what I'm, why I'm there, you know, in the sense of, um, am I, you know, an annoyed parent or am I someone nice? Because he was quite bewildered at the whole exercise, and that was the thing on his face that I saw was the bewilderment. I, <laughs> in that conversation we had there we, we, we stayed around for a, a couple of hours something like that having a chat the poor, poor guy was just like someone had suddenly in the middle of the night got a rope and tied it around his waist and then hung him over a thousand foot cliff and left him sitting there you know, as it, uh, wondering whether the rope was going to break he had just no idea of why and, uh, and what had really happened you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty hard thing to do to somebody The police launched a formal investigation led by Detective Colin Ede. After 14 years in the force, he'd been appointed to the Child Abuse Unit not long before this case erupted. He was an incredible presence of support for the children. All of the children I know, uh, the three that I know closest or ones I've heard of, he gave them a great feeling of safety. I know it was a, probably a very hard case for him. He. Um, did incredibly well as far as the families are concerned, and particularly as far as the children are concerned. I don't know how to describe him. If I'm honest, he came in, he's very quietly spoken. He seemed to start with care about the childcare centre and us, but then it soon became realised he was not um, believing us or he, because we didn't, I suppose, telling him what he wanted to hear, that we thought Peter was, something was wrong. Um, he quickly dismissed us and we didn't have a lot to do with him after then. He was always with the parents. Um, I don't know how else to describe him. Now, Colin Eater is a key player in this story, but when we called him up, he made it crystal clear he was not interested whatsoever in going over the case again. There's no doubt that he had the full backing of his superiors though. Our investigators, Paul, are trained to be highly objective. They say they were inexperienced. Absolutely not. 
This is Detective Inspector Brian Pierce defending the inquiry team on TVNZ's Holmes show in 1993. As the case grew, Pierce took over from Eda's head of the investigation. We have never wanted uh, for experienced uh, investigators on our child abuse teams. I put together a, an inquiry team uh, who were balanced in terms of their objectivity, in terms of their background of child abuse investigation, in terms of in their background of mm. uh, investigative experience. OK. Are, are you sorry? I... no question that they lacked ob objectivity. On September the 14th, 1992, at 1.55pm, Ms Magnolia spoke to one of those detectives. The interview lasted just over an hour. It was one of the many interviews she gave police. And from these records, we can get a sense of her, this woman who triggered the investigation into Peter Ellis. We've had an act of voice her statement. I am employed as a community consultant in private work. Ms Magnolia was a counsellor, specialising in sexual abuse. Well, that's right now. A month later in October, she is more detailed in what she tells the police. Now, this transcript is 22 pages long, and wait a second, uh, page 6, we found out a bit more about her background. And I was remembering my own sexual abuse as a child. I attempted suicide late 1982. I had been in a relationship with... This had finished before my suicide attempt and had something to do with it. I no longer felt protected from... My suicide attempt involved taking pills and exhaust fumes in the car. That is an awful thing for her to have gone through. But this is an important detail, because Ms Magnolia is seen by Peter Ellis's supporters as a central figure in driving this case forward. She set up a support group for parents which met throughout 1992, and you'll want to remember this for later, she provided parents with a list of all the allegations that had been levelled at Peter Ellis. She did a huge amount of damage, that woman. Now Paula continues her impressions of Ms Magnolia. She had the police paying in her pocket and she had social welfare paying in her pocket. So she, honestly, she was away. What do you mean by paying in her pocket? Well, they were, she, they were definitely on her side. They were co working collaboratively together. They were listening to her, they were believing her and she was feeding them as much information and supplying them with as many parents as she could. She was, she was driven. She, she was really the ringleader of the body of parents and scooping in as many parents as possible and convincing them to believe that the abuse had happened and that their child would have been abused. She, she took the angle that there's no way they could not have been abused. As an outsider looking in, you'd have to wonder whether her background might have led her to see abuse when there wasn't any. And down the years, that's something that's been raised a lot as an argument in support of Peter. But she says that's not what's going on at all. Here's more from that TVNZ assignment interview. I'm not obsessed with sexual abuse. I had done some work with some people who had been abused as children when they were adults. And I had done some teaching about disclosure of, the, of adults disclosing to some professional organisations. But I just can't believe why anyone would think we would want to put ourselves through this. It's destroyed our lives. I felt a lot of other children had been at risk and I was concerned for the children I cared about of friends that I knew. And they were the only people I contacted. They may have contacted other people they knew, but that was not my responsibility. 
she, she was a, a primed, if you like. Rob Harrison is a lawyer who represented Peter Ellis. She said as soon as she had heard this comment from her son, she became convinced that there was widespread abuse by Peter at the crash of other children. She is now gripped with my son's being abused. Um, and away she goes. She's like, um, she's like a super spreader event. She's like the Delta virus. She is um, so contagious. And she has a, a group of women who also work in the same area as she does, uh, who form themselves around her, and away they go. Well, it's just not true. I mean, it's blatantly, illogically silly to suggest that that could be true from one person. But as Harrison said, it wasn't just one person. After making the complaint, Miss Magnolia drew together a group of about 13 parents who also believed Peter Ellis had been abusing children. And what amazed me was that of those 13, seven were working in the sexual abuse field, according to a city-possessed author, Lily Hood. This raises the question of whether Miss Magnolia wasn't the only one primed to see abuse or, as Harrison puts it, catch the virus. That argument was put to the aunt we're calling Rose. Primed or educated, you know, uh, yeah, uh, whether that's primed or just just got their glasses on, you know, that's... How could they be blinded to it? But the fact that so many parents worked in the counselling field is something Paula has considered too. Quite a few of our parents were self-confessed counsellors. So to become a counsellor back then, in the um, early 90s, you actually didn't have to have any qualifications. You were all of us. We could have just become counsellors if we wanted to. Hired a room, put a sign that said counsellor on our door and away we go. So there were families that were involved as counsellors. Um, they may or may not have had some kind of qualifications, but certainly nothing substantial. And some didn't have any qualifications at all. I understand why your listeners might think that and want to make these stories knit together, but it just doesn't work for us wider far now that have had these kids come and say these blood-curdling things to our face. You know, like it's, I, I certainly wasn't a counselling specialist or anything like that. Just a human being, just a, a young mother um, in a wider family group with friends involved. I don't see why he should be allowed to be called innocent because of the, of the, of the professional status of the victim's parents. It just, it's, it's, it's a straw to grasp at, and I think the media did it a lot. There were a couple of other things going on, though things that may have helped create an atmosphere right for a case like this. Hey Ross, how are you? Hi Alex, I'm good. Alex is speaking with Ross Francis, a researcher from Wellington whose work on the Peter Ellis case has been published in the Law Journal and other publications. Tell me in the mid-80s, late-80s, what was the what was the history like of convictions? How did the legal system handle child sex abuse? Um, I think for a long time children were poorly served by the criminal justice system here. They were treated often as unreliable or as untrustworthy witnesses. Child sexual abuse wasn't treated as seriously as it should have been. Um, and often it would be, of course, the word of an adult against the word of a child. And also, if there was a lack of corroboration, which there, there probably almost always would be, then the judge could suggest that the jury ought to acquit. So towards the late, well, probably the mid-1980s, the mid 
child sexual abuse was really out in the public arena, became recognised as a social problem. And then in the late 80s, there was a national abuse policy that was established and the, the policy said that all serious physical abuse cases, including sexual abuse against children, should be accorded a high priority for investigation. This wasn't just a New Zealand thing. It was happening all around the world. Every child shall enjoy social protection. The United Nations signed its Convention on the Rights of the Child in 1989. That's UNICEF Goodwill Ambassador Audrey Hepburn. ...means to enable development in conditions of freedom and dignity. The Convention included a child's right to have an opinion, to have that opinion heard, and to live free from abuse and exploitation. So children's rights were a big deal at the time. So certainly the effect was that there were far more prosecutions and convictions in 95 compared to 89. But um, it did raise the issue of, of course, of were those all safe convictions? And we simply don't know that. This revolution in how child sexual abuse cases were handled went hand in hand with an increase in media coverage. This year's telethon's not about throwing money at short-term solutions. Basically what we're trying to do here is build a better, brighter future for our children. In 1988, just two years before the Kreish case blew up, it was the International Year of the Child. New Zealand's Telethon, a national 24-hour fundraiser for good causes, was broadcast live into virtually every living room in the land. What was a telethon? For Peter, like I wasn't here at that time. Oh, the telethon was a major thing where they'd... This is Professor Greg Newbold I'm talking to. He's a retired criminologist from the University of Canterbury. It was a big hoopla. And they'd get all the celebrities... Get to talk to that gorgeous hunk of Australiana, Vince Martin. So-and-so from Maori has just donated $5,000 and everyone cheers like this. And people are watching it on TV, you know, and, and everyone's trying to outdo each other. And they make millions. They make millions. And it, be, it developed into this sort of like a hysteria. People all wanted to be on TV and they all wanted to show that they cared. And every time a donation was made, a big donation, everyone's clapping. I know it sounds like some kind of mad festival, but all telethons usually had a very serious cause to support, and this time they were raising money to combat child abuse. 56,000 babies will be born in New Zealand this year. One in seven will be sexually abused. Telethon, it's your chance to change things. <gasps> Shock, horror, it's worse than we believed. It's everywhere. It's reds under the bed. You know, it's just exactly the same as the moral panic and exactly the same as, as, a, as a witch hunt. It's, this is a problem. It's much bigger than we thought it was. The culprits are all around us. Martin Van Bainen was a young journalist with the Christchurch Press who went on to cover the civic crash case over the next 30 years. There was a climate, I think, probably around the whole country where sexual abuse of children was becoming was coming through the courts more and more. We were seeing more cases of, of um, pillars of the community being charged with child abuse. And then of course we had the, the sensational news that unbeknown to us, these secret satanic rings were operating within um, 
within lots of circles, and mainly in the police, judiciary, doctors, you know, in the, in the sort of high echelons of society. In 1988, determined to uncover the secret sex ring, the police raided 40 houses around Christchurch. An elderly man was arrested for possessing photographs of naked schoolgirls, but nothing else was found. The police shut down that investigation, but a sense lingered that there was a ring of evildoers out there who were too clever, too powerful and too corrupt to ever be caught. There were other sexual abuse scares in Christchurch about this time as well, like the so-called Ward 24 case and the Glenelg Health Camp case, where claims of sexual abuse of children were later discredited and found to be baseless. Through the late 80s and into the early 90s, child sexual abuse was all over the news. Are sexually abused children getting the sort of treatment they need? This abuse of children in this country has now reached frightening proportions. Child abuse is now so prevalent, an extra 20 million dollars a day are anticipated. Amidst all this hype and concern, a family violence conference was held in Christchurch in early September 91. One workshop was on satanic ritual abuse, and it was run by Wellington abuse counsellor Anne-Marie Stapp. The media took some of the comments made during that conference very seriously. Stapp was quoted by the Christchurch daily paper The Press, saying that New Zealand was fast approaching the level of ritual abuse awareness found in the US. She said ritual abuse took many forms, but nearly always involved the cult of Satanism, with the victims being used in rituals where they were abused in humiliating and sadistic ways. A few weeks later, Stapp appeared on RNZ's Insight programme. The basic philosophy that I work from is where ritual exists, there exists the potential for ritual abuse to occur, so that we have to keep in mind that one of the main sources of ritual abuse overseas is in the Catholic Church. And I'm not saying the Catholic Church condones abuse, but that's what happens. And the other source that we know of about in the States is, of course, it happens in the daycare centres. And that's moved closer to home in the last few years. I've been reading some material about abuse in daycare centres, ritualistic abuse in daycare centres in Australia. Then in late October 91, this story broke. Allegations have been made in Australia about satanic cults engaging in child sacrifice and sexual abuse. Correspondent Phil Kafkaloudis reports no one has yet been charged over the allegations, but police in every state are investigating. The picture which has been painted in Australia of satanic cults and their involvement in such abuses indicates the public only knows a little of what has been happening. Just three weeks before Ms Magnolia's complaint was laid, RNZ's flagship news programme Morning Report ran an in-depth story. New South Wales police are investigating charges that satanic cults involved in cannibalism, murder and child abuse may be operating in 14 towns. Well, back here, Father John Ray says he first came into contact with satanic cults in New Zealand 30 years ago. Now, he says, he gets at least one call every fortnight from people convinced they're being attacked by demonic forces. I'd been in Rome on a refresher course, and I was coming back through the States, and in San Francisco I stayed with some priests there who were involved in dealing with people who needed exorcism. This, this was like a whole new world opening up to me, hearing about this side of things. Uh, my own contact with it came sometime later after my return to New Zealand, either individuals coming who'd been in such groups wanting to get away from it and wanting to be freed of anything that they'd picked up as it were from being with the people involved. So, 
Imagine yourself back in the early 90s. Child sexual abuse seemed to be everywhere and we had this new scary phenomenon of ritual sexual abuse. We talked about Miss Magnolia perhaps seeing what she knew, but the whole country was seeing what seemed like a massive increase in sexual abuse of children. And parents were frightened right at the time Peter Ellis was accused. So in 1991, with Christmas approaching, Kreish parents received a phone call inviting them to attend a meeting. The police investigation had become public news and people by now knew that a childcare worker had been suspended. So we use your pseudonym, but your voice, you want a pseudonym as well? Well, I don't mind using my voice, but I'd probably like to keep my name out of it, because, that's, that's yeah, all right. just with like, the way social media and stuff is nowadays, I just... This is Opal I'm talking to. She's a former crash student, and her mother, Miss Cedar. Now, as a crash parent, Miss Cedar went along to that first meeting. And I remember um, the police spoke at the meeting. I can't remember which officer it was. It might have been Colin Ede. And Sue Sidey also spoke. Sue Sidey was a social worker from the Department of Social Welfare. She listed off a number of behaviours, bedwetting, clinginess, nightmares, sexualised behaviour. These were things that parents should look out for as signs of abuse. And she encouraged parents to read books to their kids, books with titles including Katie's Yucky Problem and a very touching book. Parents were asking questions like, what do we say to our children? How can we talk to them about this? Um, and there was one um, father who was there. Um, I, I don't remember his name. I don't even know his child's name, but he was Australian. And, and I know that because he had an Australian accent. And he stood up and said, is this um, like the Mr Bubbles case in Australia? Are we going to find that this is just all... Um, circumstantial and fabricated and, and driven by um, some other agenda. Mr Bubbles is a famous case that had stunned Australia in 1989, two years before this meeting in Christchurch. Jocelyn said that they got undressed and that they got into a bathtub that was full of bubbles and that they played in the bathtub. Did Mr Bubbles ever get in the bath himself? Yes, he did. With she said that he got in without any clothes on. Always the same story. Three and four-year-olds being lured into bubble baths with a man who sexually abused them. Staff at a Sydney kindergarten were arrested and charged with sexually assaulting 17 children. But the case was thrown out by the judge who believed the children's testimony was unreliable, saying it had been tainted by police and social workers. And the father who brought it up in the meeting? He was... Um booed down and um, given a very hard time indeed by some by some parents and um, yeah yeah it was quite quite um, it's, it's well it stayed in my memory 30 years on apart from the books society recommended parents read with their children there was another book published right as the case against Alice picked up it's called Ritual Child Abuse, Discovery, Diagnosis and Treatment. It was written by American author Pamela Hudson. Now in the book, she identifies eight primary indicators of satanic ritual abuse. Let's read through this. Number one, compulsive erotic behaviour, acting out sex acts. Two, a sudden extreme fear of the bathroom, bathing, washing, rain. Nightmares, night terrors, night sweats, under three. Four, extremely high anxiety, fearful of being separated from parents, school refusal. 
Here we go. Hyperaggression, temper tantrums, oppositional behaviour and school disruptiveness. Six, sudden eating disorder refuses meat, ketchup, spaghetti, tomatoes. Seven, fearful of going to bed, the dark, resists bedtime, will not sleep alone. And the last one, eight, vomiting for no apparent reason, abdominal pain. Paula heard about that advice society gave to parents. The kinds of things that she was saying were, if your child doesn't like tomatoes, if they don't like sausages, if they wake at night with night terrors, if you're having problems with their behaviour, um, these are all indications that children are experiencing satanic ritual abuse. And so, you know, families went home and yes, they did have children who were having tantrums and waking at night with night terrors. Uh, they weren't, they suddenly weren't nightmares anymore. They became night terrors. So no one within the family was committing satanic ritual abuse. So it must have been happening at preschool. Do you remember what society's advice was at that stage? I do seem to recall that if, if the children started disclosing anything, then it was we were advised to just listen and, and you know write anything down. So you left that meeting and what kind of feeling? Fear. Absolute fear. I mean, uh, the way it was, um, the way the meeting was conducted, it was as if what had happened at the crash was a certainty. There was no indication that this was an ongoing inquiry or that um, they were uncertain about how how things were going to pan out. As far as uh, the message that the parents very clearly got was that um, there were there you know had been a paedophile operating at the crash and all of our children were at risk. I've contacted society to see if she would share her recollections about the case. We had a very pleasant email exchange, but she said, I'm not interested in being involved at all, but good luck with your project. Crash parent Mary Cox, her daughter Lizzie went there, remembers the meeting well. I remember it being very palpable. Like, there were, there were people um, who were just sort of sitting back and, I suppose taking it in and most probably thinking, um, right, you know, how do I address this? And there were, you know, there's one woman in particular who was just absolutely devastated with the news. And then someone else talking about the signs of, you know, what to look for. And this woman just, her child must have been displaying some of these behaviours, which were quite normal, and her just being absolutely frantic with worry that the and but the overall feeling was that they had lost control really of the group because um, it, the, there was so much anxiety that was created at that time so you came in and they say has any of your children had any problems any of them being touched or anything like this or whatever you they went in a very oblique sort of a, a way that fires up the rumours, but without giving us any information at all. That's when I just uh, I stood up and I said, look, this is just a witch hunt. And I just walked out of the room, which um, felt like a very lonely walk, I can assure you. <laughs> 
What Rees meant about the rumours, the lack of information, was that concerns about abuse at the creche were laid out in the vaguest of terms. No one at this first meeting even mentioned Peter Ellis by name. One of the meetings they all turned up to, it was about a creche worker. Well, what creche worker wasn't there? Everyone else was there. I wasn't there. You know, so... So we've already sent enough parents to go home to start asking their children questions. I mean, if five of us went there, they wouldn't necessarily know how to go home to ask the question about, but there was only one crash worker that wasn't there. So lots of parents left that first meeting feeling confused and scared. They were told to contact crash management if they had any concerns, and some came forward with earlier gripes, complaining that Peter could be sarcastic or was known to drink at lunch times. They revisited things their children had told them happened at the crash. Yes, Mummy, Peter did do something dreadful and she was horrified. And then she he dyed my hair pink. And I hair dyed, I got crepe paper. And uh, having asked permission, but there were four children that were very blonde, but um, I really should have been a bit a bit more honest, but I didn't really like the parents. <laughs> so their children had bright red hair for quite some time. <laughs> That's another story. You know, I mean, there were some parents, I mean, to be honest, there were some parents I liked and I didn't like their children, and there were some children I liked and I didn't like their parents. Another early childhood teacher who worked at the crash, I'm calling her Susanna, recalls how people dragged up the body painting incident. You'll remember that from episode one where Peter painted on some of the children. And we would, in the high height of summer, put a sprinkler on and have the kids would all sort of strip off and run around the sprinkler and throw water around, you know. Um, and Peter used to sort of be a bit boisterous with the kids and do things that weren't quite kosher, really, um, but never sort of in a, in a mean or, or a, in, a, in a way that was of concern because it was coming from the right place. And I think... He, um, they were kids were running around, and um, I'm not quite sure because I was kind of there, but not right there when it happened. And somebody had their um, little short path down, and I think he just sort of, you know, ran a paintbrush around the, you know, side of it and laughed and giggled, and um, and the kids did too. So yeah, it was it became a big deal when people were trying to remember things that might point the picture at um, Peter. Um, as being, you know, as being a pedophile. So yeah, people started revisiting things Peter Ellis had done and looking at them in a different light. But there was a problem, a pretty major one. Jeffrey, the boy who made the black penis comment, was refusing to bring it up again during his formal interviews. The comment that kicked off the whole case that got everyone talking would never be repeated and never come to trial, though Ms Magnolia remained convinced of Peter's guilt. Here's lawyer Rob Harrison. Now, her son's taken and makes this, you know, uh, is interviewed by these specialist interviewers, says nothing. But that doesn't reassure her. She came in one day with, with her partner. She looked absolutely dreadful. And we were aware that she was taking him back and forth for multiple interviews. And I smiled at her in the way you normally do when people come into your space and she looked like you know thunder and we thought oh my gosh something's you know she was absolutely angry that he hadn't revealed anything 
And she was furious. It wasn't just a, you know, mildly annoyed or just disgruntled. She was furious. She was red in the face. She was shaking her head. She was sort of overtly angry and made very sure that we knew about it and what she was angry about. Um, and I was really shocked by that because I just thought, oh, I, I, I just assumed most mums would be so relieved that he had not revealed anything. And I realised then that she was quite a dangerous and kind of unsound woman um, because it was like she was disappointed, but not just disappointed, angry that he had not come out with whatever she was assuming he was going to say. Why would a child come up with such horrific detail in their fantasy world? Here's Miss Magnolia in that assignment program four years after the alleged abuse. I don't believe that our child lives his life through fantasy. It was very real. And when a child is lying on a couch in a fetal position, spewing and um, not entirely with us as he was talking, it showed me that it was genuine, it was real. And it's understood from an extended family member that the reason Geoffrey didn't repeat his claims is that he became so, quote, frightened and catatonic, unquote, in the interview that it didn't proceed. And we'd like to be clear that Miss Magnolia wasn't the only one saying her child had been abused. By late 1991, many parents feared the worst. Even some people close to Peter started to worry that they'd missed the signs, including a former partner of his, who we'll hear from in a later episode. Now I've got this document. It's an official police letter sent on the 20th of December, so just before Christmas 1991, to the Christchurch City Council. It says, To date, there have been no disclosures of any sort of indecent touching by any person employed at the Christchurch Crest Centre. Now you could read that as saying nothing yet, but there's still a chance of further complaints. But then it clearly states, it is unlikely that these children will disclose sexual abuse. So no evidence at all at this stage, but the letter's author, Detective Colin Ede, clearly thinks the silence isn't because there was no offence, but because the kids are too scared of Peter, or too damaged to speak up, because he then writes, It is clear to me that he should not be involved in any way in the supervision or care of children. Yet at this point, four weeks after the I don't like Peter's black penis comment, the police investigation was closed. The city council was under pressure to give Peter his old job back, but instead it offered him a $10,000 redundancy payment. Well, I asked for reinstatement and I was told it wasn't an option by the city council. Um... They told me that redeployment wasn't an option. Um, basically, they were going to offer me X amount of dollars to just quietly go. And I just turned around and said, look, it's not good enough. I haven't done it. I want my job back. But neither Peter nor the council were going to be able to draw a veil over this, and Peter would never get his job back. Before long, new claims would emerge, claims that resonated with other child abuse cases from around the world. Truth is, this story's only just begun. 
Peter had this kind of whole industry going of producing pornographic movies involving the children. Next, we'll explore the rise of satanic panic, which had begun in the US a few years prior. She said, you need to brace yourself because this is the most bizarre shit you've ever heard. Because it's the most bizarre shit I've ever heard. Could it have influenced the events in Christchurch? There was definitely a feeling that secret and, and evil things were happening behind doors that would one day be exposed. That's all in the next episode of Conviction. There's going to be a, an outbreak of moral panic here on the issue of satanic abuse. And I hadn't realised it had already begun. Thanks for listening to Conviction, the Christchurch Civic Crash Case, hosted by Ellie Jones and Alexander Beza. Conviction was made by Monsoon Pictures International, with support from RNZ and New Zealand On Air. The series was written and produced with help from Aliki Siantolis, Liz Garten and Tim Watkin. Blair Stagpole was the audio engineer. The voice actor in this episode is Josie Campbell. Thanks go out to RNZ's commissioning team, Kay Elmers and Tim Burnell, for giving this project the green light, and to Hingyi Kong for designing the webpage. And to Nataonga Sound and Vision for help with some of the archival audio, as well as MediaWorks, Discovery, Getty Images, TVNZ, and the Livingston Family Trust. The key image for the series is courtesy of North and South. Conviction can be found on the podcast page of the RNZ website. It's also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Follow the series so you don't miss an episode. Yeah.